Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. The scripture reading this, this evening will be Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4. Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. You may be seated. Tonight, let's spend our sermon time talking about questions. And I want to thank everybody who has participated in submitting questions. Let's get started. Would it not be a sin to stay silent and to not sing during the worship services? I don't know what motivated this question. The, um, the first thing I want to remind you is that, that we're going to sing in heaven. I do not know all the things we're going to do in heaven. But I know that we're going to sing in heaven. It seems to me that I really need to be kindling a thirst for this if I don't have it now. Sometimes uh, you may look and see someone around you who's not singing. I don't think we should judge that. I, I know what it is to have a sore throat, and you do too. But, but you'll know about yourself, and the answer is that it would be just as right for us to choose to not participate in this avenue of our worship as it would be to choose to not participate in another avenue. Imagine saying, I don't think I'll eat the Lord's Supper, just don't feel like it today. Well, uh, that's not what you want to do, and would it be wrong? Of course it would be wrong. I don't think I'll participate in the giving of my, my money today to the work of the Lord. I don't think I'll do that. I just don't prefer to do it. Is that wrong? The answer would be yes. And so, the answer to the question is that it would be wrong to choose not to sing. And, but the fact is, we all ought to want to sing. I, I believe that from Colossians 3 and verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And we talked about that this morning. It seems to me that, that if you have the love of Christ in you, that you're going to want to sing. The natural impulse from human beings, when they're full of that grace, they just are so grateful for the cross they just want to sing. That's how God made you. This is from Luke chapter 17 and verse 3. And the question is this. Since forgiveness follows repentance, Luke 17, 3, how is it that Jesus and Stephen ask for forgiveness of their executioners, for their executioners, without any evidence of repentance? So you got it? If, if it's true that repentance has to precede forgiveness, and that's what Luke 17.3 says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. 
If it's true that repentance must precede forgiveness, how do you reconcile that with what Jesus prayed on the cross? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And Stephen in Acts 7, when he was just about to die, they'd stoned him to death. And just before he gave up the ghost, he he prayed that this would not be laid to their charge. The answer is this. I, I need to be careful about, and we've talked about this before, to appreciate that repentance has to precede forgiveness. When you go to Matthew chapter 18, if your brother sins against you, the first thing you do, and Jesus explains this out in a progression, you go to him privately, the two of you alone, and settle the matter. If he won't hear you, then take one or more with you, and if he won't hear them, then take it before the church. And so you have this this thing, but what he doesn't say is, if your brother sins against you, even without his repentance, just forgive him. Now, this seems troubling to us. I mean, we, we just have a hard time with this because we just naturally believe that if, if we're Christians and we're merciful, and besides that, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that the natural thing that we should do anytime anybody sins against us or sins in general is just, just quickly forgive them. And the question is, what about Jesus? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Or Stephen, don't lay this this sin to their charge. And how do you you explain that? And the answer is that those were general prayers, and it's the prayer that you ought to pray. They They were prayed in recognition of God's justice. I cannot presume to forgive sin that God has not forgiven. That would put me in a terrible position. And in fact, it seems to me that it would put me in the position of encouraging somehow that sin to continue if I pretend that forgiveness has occurred when God has not forgiven that. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to be presumptuous. I'm not God. But the fact is that, that repentance, the Bible teaches, does have to precede forgiveness. In my own life, should someone sin against me, I need to do what I can to try to, try to bring about that turn of heart in that person's life the the repentance. What if I can't accomplish that? What if nothing I can do or I've tried, nothing will work? Then I I come to the place where I can let it go. There may be a a time when I, I, there's nothing more that I can do about this. That's a very sad thing, but that's not the same thing as forgiveness. And forgiveness has to be preceded by repentance. Notice that neither Stephen nor Jesus implied that people should be forgiven that very moment, but what they were praying is that God would bring about an occasion where they could repent. And so you have this, of course, with the people who crucified Jesus. And you remember that in Acts chapter 2, that's when the prayer was answered. And so Peter identified those people. You have crucified the Son of God. And they were told to repent and be baptized to have forgiveness for their sins. And so... I don't know what happened with these people who stoned Stephen. We don't have that spelled out. But the same thing must be true. And we should follow the same kind of technique as the Lord and pray for forgiveness of those who have wronged us, even if they haven't repented, but but with the understanding that they're going to have to repent for that to be made right in the heart of God. Next, isn't it a logical fallacy to point back to the Bible to justify and explain that the Bible is the word of God and that it's complete. You get this? It's a question of circular reasoning. And the idea is, how can, you, how can you try to prove the validity of the scripture? That it is inspired and that it's complete by, by just using the, 
the testimony of the Bible itself. And the, the truth is that I would argue that, that the question's right. I mean, if we only use the Bible to verify the Bible, then we have committed the logical fallacy, the wrong of circular reasoning. But, but that doesn't mean that, that what the Bible says about itself is not valid or that it's not important. And the Bible abundantly professes to be the Word of God. Now, you just have to know that. So somebody has counted 3,800 times in, this, in the whole Bible where you have reference to the fact that this really is the Word of God. But other times, let me just point some out to you. Of course, 2 Timothy 3.16 is familiar. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And what about uh, Psalm 119? 175 times in this one psalm, you have reference to the fact that this is from the Word, or this is the Word of God. Acts 20, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, verse 1 says, And the Lord spoke all these words. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as it really is, the word of God. But again, I would not say that, that we would merely go on the fact that the Bible claims to be the word of God. We enjoy that. We believe that. It substantiates the, the claim that it's the word of God. But in addition to that, we can examine the internal, the internal evidences of the inspiration and that the kids are learning some of these things. I, I, and I know that they don't understand the depth of what they're saying, but that's okay. That'll come later. The scientific foreknowledge, the fulfillment of prophecy, the unity of the Bible, despite the fact that it's written over 1,600 years by about 40 different writers, and yet it holds together so beautifully, are external evidences of the validity of the Scripture as the Word of God. Then you have external evidences. Which, by the way, did I mention to you that I've been to Israel recently? Sorry. Uh, we're not finished turning over the external evidences that the Bible is valid. I'm telling you, it's happening all the time. You go back into antiquity and you go back into archaeology and what you're finding is more and more evidence. And when you go over there, you'll discover what is new that's been unearthed and that proves that the Bible... Can you believe it? Had it right all along. And, and so I would argue that, that what the person is asking has validity. I would also suggest that there's a good book that you can get free from Apologetics Press. Kyle Butt wrote it, Behold the Word of God, and it will, it will surely give you evidences that you will enjoy studying. Next, this question uh, has actually been asked of me in one form or another, but it's the same question three times in the last couple of weeks um, by people who are not members here. But I think it might be interesting to you. And it's a, it's a question about marriage and divorce and remarriage. Here we go. Joe and Jane Doe have been married for years. Joe had an affair, committing adultery. Jane, though hurt, decided to make their marriage work. She forgave him, <clears throat> and the marriage continued for several years. Other troubles arise. Jane decides to leave Joe because she no longer loves him. He's changed. She files for divorce. A short time after the divorce is final, Jane begins dating. She says she has a right to remarry because Joe broke their marriage vows 
back when, when he committed adultery. Is it a scriptural right, since years have passed after the sexual unfaithfulness and Jane had forgiven and stayed with Joe as a wife, does she have the right to remarry? Or did she forfeit that when she forgave him and continued living with him? I think it's a great question. And, and you remember about all these marriage and divorce questions that come up, and this probably is a good reason why I should bring this question tonight, is that you need to keep your feet on the ground with the scripture that is plain. The, most, uh, the plainest scripture about this subject came from the lips of Jesus in Matthew 19 and verse 9. Now, there are other important passages, but this one is so terribly plain. Whoever puts away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her which is put away commits adultery. Now, what that teaches, of course, is that there's a law of God about marriage, and that is one man for one woman for life. There is an exception. I would not have the right to make an exception, but Jesus does. And he said, except it be for this reason. And the reason is fornication, or in this case, adultery. The question is, uh, if, if a man commits adultery and then his wife forgives him and then they live together as husband and wife, does that mean that she's forfeited her right to say, no, I'm putting you away for this cause. Let me give you two scenarios. Each one starts with that same principle, that same idea. Man commits adultery, wife, he, he repents, he wants to reconcile. She says, okay. In one scenario, which is the one that's been asked about here, they, they continue on for an extended period of time as husband and wife, but at some point she gets bored with him. At some point she just sort of gets tired of him. And she says, okay, I'm going to put you away. And bear in mind that there was a time back there when you committed adultery. And now I want to play that card. I want to use that card. In reality, it's because she's bored with him. Or maybe she's become attracted to somebody else. I want you to remember that back to the anchor The anchor is the word of God. And what Jesus says is the one exception is for the cause of fornication. There may be other extenuating circumstances, always are. But the straw that breaks the camel's back is sexual immorality. It is fornication or adultery. In this case that I just described, she's not putting away her husband because of his adultery. She's putting him away because she's tired of him. Right? That's the reason. That's the real reason. And so I would say it does not, it doesn't match up and reconcile with what Jesus is saying. And so she has, she does not have that right. And it would be wrong. But take a different scenario. Suppose the same thing happened. And in this case, the woman says to her husband, I, I, I understand that you are sorry for what you did. I forgive you. And I will, I will, I'll try. I'll make a go of this. Let's try. A woman called me last week from another town, and, and she's in the situation I'm describing to you now. And so she tried, and she tried. But her life is miserable. She cannot stand it. She cannot stand it. I won't go any farther than that, but just, just take my word for it. And she's, um, she's broken every day. I believe that she would have the right, even after a period of time has lapsed, to say, 
I've tried. I can't do this. I cannot do this. And still put him away for his adultery. But those two situations, scenarios, you can tell are quite different. Uh, one of them would meet the criteria of Matthew 19.9 and the other would not. Number next. I had the scripture read a while ago because of this question. Who were the sons of God in Genesis 6 verse 4? Now I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 6. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now this interesting part, the Nephilim, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And so this, this interesting turn of phrase here has made some people believe that, that the men of God were the angels, all right, who came to earth and the angels married the daughters of men human beings, and from this union came this this race of people called the Nephilim. Well, the first thing, just let me summarize and say, that's not true. I know from Matthew chapter 22 that, verse 30, that the angels are not married nor given in marriage. And so I would say that that verse alone that came from the mouth of the Lord would take that possibility off the table. The second thing that's interesting about this passage is the word Nephilim. And it's not in every translation. When you look it up in in the the New King James, which I'm using tonight, it says uh, giants. Giants. Instead of... Nephilim is a transliteration. It's to take the Hebrew word and just kind of turn it into an English word without defining it or giving us a, a clarity about it. So the bottom line is this. I'm convinced the sons of God here that are talked about are those who are righteous before God. The daughters of men were those who were unrighteous before God, and they married, and the results were not good. The, uh, at, at, actually, though, at the same time, there were these men who were large in those days. I, I, w- I would point out that, and you might find this interesting, that the, that the word here translated Nephilim, the giants, <clears throat> that word's found twice in the Old Testament. And the other time is when the spies went into Canaan and they saw the the sons of Anak. And that same word is translated giants. And it's the same word for Nephilim. And so, you know, nothing very mysterious about that. They were Canaanites, but they were very, very tall. Good question. Let's do one more. This, um, I'm not going to say where I was, but I, I recently took a trip. And, and while there, it's inevitable that you're going to see a lot of Orthodox Jews who are worshiping. And you go in, to, the, to, the, um, to the Wailing Wall there, and there will be lined up, and they're wearing the Jewish <clears throat> attire. And no doubt that they're very sincere 
but in the process of their prayers, they're holding something. They have phylacteries on their heads in the full garb, and they're standing in front of the wall, inches from their face, and they're, they're praying and they're bobbing. I don't mean anything insulting by that, but they're, they're doing this. And, and I can't look at that without being troubled by what's in this next question. It's greatly disturbing to me. It's clear that they're very religious, very sincere. <clears throat> Frankly, they don't care what you think about them. Again, that's not an ugly statement. It's just to say that they're raising their children to be what they are, and, and they have an air about them that, you know, it's, it's the Jews and then it's the rest of us. We're the Gentiles. And so don't read anything ugly into that. I don't mean anything like that. But here's what is troubling. And the question is, is there any mention of the Jews continuing to make animal sacrifices in the New Testament? When and who decided not to do that anymore? Are there any people who still do offer animal sacrifices? Now, I want you to bear in mind that animal sacrifices were right. And Brother James has been just doing a terrific job teaching us from the book of Hebrews. And a great deal of that teaching has to do with the meaning of the animal sacrifices under the old law. And how that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. And what Jesus is, is the once and for all sacrifice. And in the sermon this morning, I made reference to the fact that it would be wrong for us to offer animal sacrifices today. But setting that aside, 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the whole world. Hebrews 10, 10 through 14, that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. <clears throat> Their Judaism continued after the cross, and, and so there's no reason to believe that you didn't have animal sacrifices going on a lot after the cross by the Jews. They, they, were, they kept practicing this, and so we know that it went on beyond that. But when you get to A.D. 70 and Titus comes in and destroys Jerusalem, the temple is destroyed, and that is considered the line of demarcation where the sacrifices of the Jews stopped. Judaism did not stop, and, and it's continued rather abundantly today, but not with sacrifices, not with animal sacrifices. And of course, they do not believe in Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah. This is an interesting quote, and Caleb, my son, sent it to me uh, recently from Daniel, uh, Don, uh, Daniel Hartman of the Shalom Institute in Jerusalem. And he said of the A.D. 70 destruction, and I quote, around that time, animal sacrifice as a mode of religious worship, stopped. And then he added, moving back in that direction is not progress. I, I think it's very interesting that he used this term as a mode of religious worship, that animal sacrifice is a mode of religious worship. I think that is confusing, and <clears throat> it misdirects people's minds. This was about atonement. It's, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And, and, and the very idea that he would just describe it as a religious worship is a, is a misnomer. The point is that today there are very few groups, if any, in, in Judaism who practice animal sacrifices. There may be some isolated cases, 
there was an article from 2015. There was a small group of Samaritans who gathered at Passover and sacrificed some lambs. But they are an anomaly. They are the exception. By and large, Judaism believes that forgiveness of sins is obtained through repentance and prayer and good deeds. Now, they use Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6 to devalue the need for sacrifices. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And, of course, the point of that is not what they're, they're misusing the passage. And they overlook passages like Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. Listen closely. The life of a creature is in the blood. And I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. That's the part that chills me. That's the part when I see the sincerity and the worship and the dedication. All of that in Judaism today. Because they have no atonement. Now I'm not suggesting that if they started performing the the sacrifices of animals as the law of Moses dictated. I'm not saying that if they did that today, that would save them. It would not, of course. Only Christ can do that. But they've rejected the Messiah, and they have no bloody sacrifice at all. And if you have no blood for atonement, you have no atonement. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at collie at westhuntsville.org.